0: the most erroneous assumption is to the effect that the aim of public education is to fill the young in the species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence. Nothing could be further from the truth. The aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level, to breed and train a standardized citizenry to put down dissent and originality. That is its aim in the United States, whatever the pretensions of the politicians. And that is its aim everywhere else. H. L. Mencken Hey everybody, CJ here with another fun size dose of dangerous history. Yes, behind the scenes, I am whittling away at multiple large upcoming projects, but none of them are quite ready to record yet. Some of them are quite far from that point still. But I decided I'd throw together another one of these fun size episodes just so you hear from me once in a while. I hope you're doing well. I myself am quite willing to admit that I've been struggling a lot lately with mental health broadly defined, and it mostly has to do with the insanity of the world as sort of negative depressing background noise, and then with the specific effects in my own little micro world of the COVID hysteria on my job. It has made my teaching day job so much more difficult, stressful, soul-crushing, and consumptive of my time and my energy. Because of everything going online and all that kind of stuff, my, my job has just gotten crazy. And my work days are just blurry groundhog day, exhausting installments of getting up super early and working like a madman. And then by, you know, late afternoon, early evening, I am just fried. And I'm still trying to do as much work on the podcast as I can, but it's been harder and harder just because the job has been eating up so much of my time and my energy. So just as a side note, if you're not already a contributor or supporter of the show, but you enjoy the show and you value what I do, if you are able to, I hope you will consider becoming a supporter. I really could use the help. Every little bit puts me a little bit closer to buying my freedom, and maybe potentially being able to do this and related things full-time. I'm not there yet, for sure. But with your help, maybe I can get there. Maybe I can buy my freedom, and walk away from the day job, before it kills me. Anyway, for this fun-sized DHP episode, I decided I would hit a smorgasbord of... Late 19th and early 20th century American progressives on education. Because, of course, with all the work I've been doing on Woodrow Wilson the past few years, I've been running into progressivism and education in various ways as part of that research. And, you know, I already knew from reading people like John Taylor Gatto that the progressives had a big impact on the way that schooling evolved in America since the late 19th century. And yeah, you know, you had people like Horace Mann all the way back before the Civil War who really got the ball rolling on importing the Prussian-style school system in, in America and getting it set up first in New England and then ultimately getting it more or less standardized throughout the country in the aftermath of the Civil War. And certainly some of the ideas that the progressives had about education you can find already lurking in ancestral form in Horace Mann and others of his era. But nonetheless, I still think that the progressives, if nothing else, drastically amped up some of the kind of most anti-individual and anti-intellectual freedom aspects of the Horace Mann paradigm of education. So the Horace Mann paradigm, to me, is sort of like a halfway house in between what America had for schooling before and what it ends up getting, say, in the 20th century. But the progressives performed an important role of really deeply and systematically revamping American schooling and doing so with resources that Horace Mann and people of his era could not have dreamed of in terms of support from major universities, as well as things like corporate foundations and so forth. So I started off with a quote from H.L. Mencken, obviously a critic of American schooling. From the early 20th century. And now we'll see by looking at some of the words of progressive education reformers and advocates themselves, was Mencken right to criticize public schooling as he did? So, anyway, I'm going to share with you a sampling of quotes from key people in kind of progressive education. And for the most part, I'll let them speak for themselves, although I probably won't be able to help myself from commenting on some of these quotes. But anyway, the first one is going to be from an American philosopher and scientist who is considered the father of pragmatism as a philosophy in America. A guy named Charles Sanders Pierce, who in many ways I think is best thought of as like a proto-progressive. In the same way that, for example, before punk rock really popped up in the 70s, you had... From the mid-60s into the early 70s, you know, still well before punk rock existed, you nonetheless had sort of proto-punk bands and musicians of various sorts, right? That you can look back on and go, oh, yeah, those guys, it wasn't quite punk rock yet, but they were, you know, sort of ahead of the curve on some of that stuff, right? And so you could look back and make a list as big or little as you wanted to get, right? But, you know, you could point back to, like, The Who, The Kinks, Iggy Pop, you know, and I'm not going to keep listing off artists, but you, you get the idea, right? That these are the sorts of things that they're not quite punk rock yet, but they're almost there. And my understanding of Charles Sanders Pierce is kind of that way, that he's sort of like a proto-progressive. Although I admit, I don't know a huge amount about him. But he was a major intellectual influence on a lot of leading progressives who are much better known to us today. So anyway, this passage I'm going to share with you comes from an article he wrote called The Fixation of Belief, which was published in an 1877 issue of the magazine Popular Science Monthly. So Charles Sanders Pierce writes, quote, Let the will of the state act, then, instead of that of the individual. Let an institution be created which shall have for its object to keep Correct doctrines before the attention of the people, to reiterate them perpetually, and to teach them to the young, having at the same time power to prevent contrary doctrines from being taught, advocated, or expressed. Let all the possible causes of a change of mind be removed from man's apprehensions. Let them be kept ignorant, lest they should learn of some reason to think otherwise than they do. Let their passions be enlisted so that they may regard private and unusual opinions with hatred and horror, End quote. So he's describing an educational paradigm that's almost like brainwashing, basically, where a major purpose of the schooling is not to enlighten, but just the opposite. It's about indoctrinating people with certain ideas and beliefs and then training them to cling to those and to be militantly against any other competing ideas. He explicitly says that this school he's describing is going to put ideas into the heads of the young, but at the same time, as he says, it will have the power to prevent contrary doctrines from being taught, advocated, or expressed. So, he's he's explicitly saying that schooling should be used for a form of thought control and indoctrination. And again, just let me share the last couple sentences with you, just to reiterate it. He says, and I quote, Let them be kept ignorant, lest they should learn of some reason to think otherwise than they do. Let their passions be enlisted, so that they may regard private and unusual opinions with hatred and horror. End quote. So they're going to be trained such that their own emotions are going to be their self-thought police. Hmm. Looking around at the current state of the United States and people losing their minds and being militantly irrational and emotional, has Pierce's dream been achieved? The next passage I'm going to share with you comes from John Dewey. And by the way, these uh, progressive education quotes, I'm sharing them with you in the order in which these things were published. So we go from Pierce in the 1870s to the 1890s with John Dewey, who is undoubtedly the best-known progressive schooling activist from this time period. And so this passage comes from an 1897 essay of his called My Pedagogic Creed. Dewey says, quote, I believe that all education proceeds by the participation of the individual in the social consciousness of the race. I believe that the only true education comes through the stimulation of the child's powers, by the demands of the social situations in which he finds himself. Through these demands, he is stimulated to act as a member of a unity, to emerge from his original narrowness of action and feeling, and to conceive of himself from the standpoint of the welfare of the group to which he belongs. I believe that education is the fundamental method of social progress and reform. I believe that every teacher should realize the dignity of his calling, that he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of proper social order and the securing of the right social growth. I believe that in this way the teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. End quote. So, here, schooling is going to be not just about inculcating certain beliefs, but it's about truly absorbing the individual into the collective. All education proceeds by participation in the consciousness of the race, he says. The student will be stimulated to act as a member of a unity and to conceive of himself from the standpoint of the welfare of the group. And he says that the teacher is performing a key service by maintaining proper social order. Hmm, I wonder what that means. And securing the right social growth. And he literally says that a teacher who's doing this is bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, if that doesn't sound terrifying and culty to you, I don't know what else to tell you. And one of the key things happening here that probably Dewey did more than anybody else, but a lot of these other people I'm going to be sharing quotes from certainly did as well, is that the progressives, much more so even than somebody like Horace Mann completely upended hundreds and even thousands of years of tradition of thinking about education since at least the ancient greeks if not even further back education was always conceived first and foremost in individualistic terms the idea was that what education truly comes down to is more than anything else you becoming a better you Because by learning knowledge and skills and wisdom and things that you didn't previously have, you're going to be a more capable individual, but also a better one. Because the idea is if you're better educated in the true sense of the word educated, right? Not just in the sense of I spent this many hours sitting in this school or whatever, but true education is always first and foremost an individual activity, even if you're doing it you know, with others in a, in a classroom setting or in any sort of a group setting, still ultimately it's each individual that is experiencing education and is cultivating themselves to be a better them, right? And so that's the idea. And the progressives are explicitly saying that to them, education is about the exact opposite. Rather than about cultivating yourself and your individuality and presumably your unique talents and personality and all these sorts of things, Instead, what education is first and foremost about for the progressives is about indoctrinating you with the right beliefs and in absorbing you into the collective, which is the exact opposite of the classical idea that it's about cultivating yourself to be the best you you can be. The next quote comes from a guy named William Torrey Harris, who held a position of United States Commissioner of Education from 1889 to 1906. So I'm not sure the exact, like, legal or constitutional details of what that job entailed. There was, of course, not yet a federal Department of Education, so I'm not sure exactly what he was presiding over or anything like that. Because the federal Department of Education doesn't come in until, I believe, the 1970s. But obviously the federal government was already, at least peripherally, getting involved in education all the way back in the 19th century. Otherwise, this guy wouldn't have had this job and this title. So, in a book titled The Philosophy of Education, published in 1906, William Torrey Harris says this, quote, 99 students out of 100 are automata, careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom this is not an accident, but the result of substantial education, which scientifically defined is the subsumption of the individual, end quote. So there you go. He notes that most people seem to be just kind of mindlessly conformist and whatever, which I don't think is wrong. It's just kind of a statement of what you see if you observe most people around you in society, right? Most people are just kind of mindlessly going through the motions and sort of doing what they're told and doing and saying and believing the expected things of them. But he says explicitly that this is not an accident. He says it's the result of education. But then he goes on to define education scientifically as the subsumption of the individual. So here's this guy who was the head guy in the federal government for education for almost two decades. And he explicitly says that education is ultimately about subsuming the individual into the collective and that this tendency of most people to just, you know, conform and go along with whatever's around them, which I think probably for most people is kind of a natural tendency. I really do believe that evolutionarily human beings have generally been selected for conformity in the sense that if you were a nonconformist in most human societies throughout history and the much greater time period of prehistory, if you were a nonconformist in many societies, that would be the end of your genes. I mean, in an extreme case, your tribe might decide to exile you, which might mean death, very likely back then, or they might decide to sacrifice you to their gods or something like that for having too weird of beliefs and behaviors and whatever and even if your tribe didn't do something as drastic as exiling you or killing you or something like that if you were a nonconformist even if they let you live in society probably you were less likely to get mates so this to me is the evolutionary explanation of why most people seem to be just hardwired for mindless conformity so i think even without this system of schooling that the progressives were designing it's likely that most people would be fairly conformist most of the time, and only a small minority contingent of weirdos. People like me, and I would guess very likely people like you, dear listener, are kind of born not hardwired for mindless conformity. But William Tory Harris is saying that the schools need to deliberately try to cultivate the trend of mindless conformity. To to bring it out even more, to amp it up. And so, again, looking around at the world today and how hyper tribalistic and often extremely irrational people are becoming, are we living in the consequences of the ideas of people like this? The next one, of course, comes from our good buddy Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, near the end of his academic career, not long before he left academia to run for governor of New Jersey, in 1909, so literally the year before he ran for governor, he delivered a lecture called The Meaning of a Liberal Education, which was a speech to the New York High School Teachers Association. So this is, you know, when he was still president of Princeton University and one of the most respected academics in America. Woodrow Wilson in this speech said the following, quote, It is imperative that we distinguish between education and technical or industrial training. We want one class of persons to have a liberal education, and we want another class of persons, a very much larger class of necessity in every society, to forego the privileges of a liberal education and fit themselves to perform specific, difficult, manual tasks. The majority of men have to be drawers of water and hewers of wood. End quote. So, this to me is a very, very elitist, paternalist sort of a statement. The idea is that the vast majority of the masses should not have a genuine liberal education in the sense of, you know, a classical liberal artsy type of an education. And they should only get basically job training. Now, I have nothing against vocational training. I think it probably would be a good thing in general if there was more vocational education in the United States, and if that sort of thing was given more respect, and if more students were pointed in that direction, if that fits their personality, right? There's a lot of students currently who get shoved into college who really are not, in terms of their personality and their interests, a good fit for a traditional liberal arts kind of an education. I totally agree with that. What bothers me, though, is the idea of institutions and politicians and people like Woodrow Wilson kind of appointing themselves as the people who get to do the sorting. Right. So, in other words, I don't disagree with the idea that probably most people will get more benefit and fulfillment through some sort of vocational education than they will through a classical education or something like that. But, you know, not that Wilson explicitly addressed it in that little short quote but you know that their idea is that there's going to be you know government administrators and whatever who are going to do the deciding who are going to do the sorting who are going to decide you know who gets to be a member of the elite and get a real education and who gets to be a drawer of water or a hewer of wood so i think it's fine if people are generally free and a majority of them choose to pursue primarily education of the sort that is directly geared towards some sort of a job or career or a trade or what have you. I don't have any problem with people making their own decisions. And I think a lot of people, if they weren't continuously propagandized by everybody around them about go to college, go to college, go to college. I think a lot of people, if they were not brainwashed to that extent would choose to go, you know, learn a trade or something like that. And I have nothing but the greatest respect for artisans and you know, skilled tradespeople and whatever. I mean, people who are carpenters, welders, electricians, plumbers, on and on and on. I mean, I've got nothing but respect for people who can do those things competently and with great skill. I mean, in many ways, they are the foundation of our civilization. And I absolutely do not look down on skilled blue-collar workers. And by the way, many of them make more money than I do. And I don't have any problem with that. But this idea of having elite people and institutions making the decisions about who's allowed to get what kind of education, that artificial intervention, that's what I don't like. I'm for people being free to choose, and if they want to choose vocational education, hey, more power to you. But I also want to point out that these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And what I mean by that is that it is possible to, you know, learn some skilled trade or whatever, and yet at the same time also... In your spare time, if you're so inclined, pursue education in any number of ways, even just in terms of reading up on a subject that you're interested in. And there are plenty of people who don't have university degrees, who do some sort of a skilled trade or whatever to make a living, who also study various subjects just as a hobby for the purpose of satisfying their own curiosity. You know, so I know there are people out there who are plumbers or carpenters or truck drivers or whatever who also read almost as many history books as I do, for example. And so I also reject the idea that it's either or, that you either have to be a skilled manual laborer or educated in the traditional sense of the word, and that these are mutually exclusive ideas. The next quote comes from Frederick Taylor Gates who was a clergyman, an educator, and also an advisor to John D. Rockefeller for over 30 years. And it was this guy, Frederick Taylor Gates, who founded, with Rockefeller funds to do it, something called the General Education Board, which had a massive impact on public schooling all throughout the first half of the 20th century. So this quote is from Frederick Taylor Gates' 1913 book. The country school of tomorrow. Gates writes, quote, In our dream, the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or of science. We are not to raise up from among them authors, orators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor will we cherish even the humbler ambition to raise up from among them lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we now have ample supply. For the task we set before ourselves is a very simple as well as a very beautiful one. To train these people as we find them for a perfectly ideal life. Just where they are. An idyllic life under the skies and within the horizon, however narrow, where they first open their eyes. So, if that's not just like creepy and disgusting and horrifying, I don't know what to tell you. And there, very clearly, you get some of the same ideas as the Wilson quote, but elaborated much more fully, and with it explicitly being said that the elites, people like Gates, get to decide who gets to be molded into what via education, and that specifically the public schooling system is not designed to produce talented people, creative people, etc., or even professionals. Gates has decided that there's enough people who are really educated. We don't want or need more. We need people to just be happy to stay in their lane. We want a school system that more than anything else makes people mindlessly content with whatever station in life they're born into. These people were very much uncomfortable with the fluidity of late 19th, early 20th century American society, with the degree of class mobility that did really exist at that time. With the idea that, you know, some poor kid born to immigrant parents or whatever could, through hard work and ingenuity, really make something of himself and do something great. People like Gates, people like the Rockefellers, they don't like that. What they wanted was a caste system, but designed in such a way that it would be invisible to most people, so that this caste system could be created and enforced in the United States without most people realizing that that's what was going on. Because most regular Americans would correctly reject the imposition of a really strict kind of caste system for people where you're born into your station and that's it. So what they're doing is they're using the schooling system and some other tools as well, for sure, to create a system in which class mobility is minimized without it being obvious to people that that's what's happening. And so in this schooling system, people are going to be raised to be kind of like placid sheep or ignorant, content serfs who are just happy to do what they're told and stay in their lane. Well, I've got one more quote from a progressive education person to share with you, and that is from Elwood P. Cubberly, who was a professor at Stanford and was the head of Stanford University's Graduate School of Education for many years, and who was a very influential education reformer. And this passage comes from his 1916 book, Public School Administration. Cubberly writes, quote, Our schools are, in a sense, factories in which the raw products, children, are to be shaped and fashioned into products to meet the various demands of life. The specifications for manufacturing come from the demands of 20th century civilization, and it is the business of the school to build its pupils according to the specifications laid down." So there you go. The schools are factories. The kids are the product. So, before we wrap up this episode, I just want to share with you one more time that H.L. Mencken quote. And think about, how right is Mencken, given what these progressive education people said themselves, in their own words, about the system that, at the time, they were helping to create for schooling in America? So, one more time, H.L. Mencken on public education. The most erroneous assumption is to the effect that the aim of public education is to fill the young in the species with knowledge and awaken their intelligence. Nothing could be further from the truth. The aim of public education is not to spread enlightenment at all. It is simply to reduce as many individuals as possible to the same safe level, to breed and train a standardized citizenry, to put down dissent. And originality. That is its aim in the United States, whatever the pretensions of the politicians, and that is its aim everywhere else. End quote. Sometimes an institution that appears to be failing at its supposed purpose or its supposed job, sometimes that institution isn't actually failing because its real job isn't what most people think it is. And so a good example of that is the Federal Reserve, right? If you're told, Oh, yeah, the Federal Reserve is there primarily to stabilize the value of the dollar and manage the business cycle and smooth out the economy. And then you look at the empirical reality that the Federal Reserve, since its creation in 1913, the dollar has lost most of its buying power. It's lost something like, you know, 98, 99 percent of its buying power based on, you know, what a dollar could buy you in 1913. And the fluctuations of the business cycle have not gotten less severe, but more severe. So based on that, you would have to say the Federal Reserve is a complete failure. But of course, as anyone knows who's read something like The Creature from Jekyll Island, or any other honest take on the history of the Fed and where it really came from and who really designed it and for what purposes, like, for example, some of the stuff Murray Rothbard wrote about the Fed, then you realize that the purpose of the institution was never, first and foremost, to stabilize the economy and preserve the value of the dollar. Instead, it was designed by the banksters to serve their interests, to make sure that Wall Street would continue to dominate America top to bottom and to make sure that there was something to bail out the big financial institutions whenever they needed. And if you realize that that's the true purpose of the Federal Reserve, regardless of what the public version of you know what it's up to says, right, that that's just propaganda for the masses, the real purpose, the esoteric purpose is to empower and bail out Wall Street. Then you go, oh yeah, the Federal Reserve gets an A+, because it's been doing that very well for 107 years. Well, likewise with the public schooling system. If you think that this thing was really designed and intended to Produce people coming out of the schools who were genuinely educated in the truest sense of the word, who are cultivated, who have acquired lots of useful, valuable knowledge and wisdom, who have become better versions of themselves, who are open to new ideas and creative and are capable of good, clear thinking and analysis and independent thought. If you think that's what our school system is designed to do, then you'd have to say it's getting an F if you look at just most people coming out of the system. Yes, there are rare exceptions. There are people who go through the public school system for a number of years and come out and still have some independent thought and still, you know, manage to achieve some education somehow. I myself am one of those people, I think. Maybe you are too. But the vast majority come out not really capable of independent, logical thinking, Not having cultivated their unique talents and gifts to the utmost of what's possible. And instead, they come out mostly having learned submission, obedience, and conformity. But what if teaching submission, obedience, and conformity was actually the real purpose of the institution? If the real purpose of the institution is to indoctrinate certain beliefs, to hobble someone's critical thinking capability, to erode someone's individuality, and to inculcate massive increases in submission, obedience, and conformity. If that's the real purpose of this institution, and by the way, that is what the half dozen quotes from progressive education activists that I just shared with you, they flat out said that. If that's its true purpose, then the system is actually doing very well. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have, and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level, And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do so I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.